Thanks, Ben. Morning, everyone. So, have you ever had the ever ever had the experience of making an assumption about someone or something? Then you got to know that thing or got to know that person, and you realize, wow, I was super wrong about them. Anybody ever had that? Um, maybe it was like something as innocuous as say like kombucha. <laughs> you looked at kombucha, you were like, gross. And they opened it, and you smelled it, and you were like, even worse. And they showed you like the mother swimming around on the bottom. Does anyone drink kombucha? And then you start drinking it every day after that. Anybody? Yeah, because you love the booch. Who loves the booch? Kombucha. Others of you like, were like, I was totally right about that. Before, I looked at it. I thought it'd be gross. I drank it. Definitely gross. Yeah? Uh, I know I had that experience. I mean, like, when I first looked at kombucha, I thought, there's no way I would ever drink that. Then I drank some, and I thought, oh, I really like it. Uh, that actually happens to us a lot, doesn't it? I mean, it, maybe it's even happened to you with, like, your best friend or your spouse, even. Like, you, you met, met someone, you were like, I really don't like that person. And then you got to know them and realized, well, I was so wrong about them. Um, here's why I mentioned that. Uh, in a very real way, I think that people make so many assumptions about Christianity, don't they? And one of the assumptions they make, uh, or the assumptions that they make, get, like, keep them from becoming Christians. And what we're going to look at today in our section in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus gives a description of like religious adherence that I think most people uh, who don't believe in Jesus would actually say, yeah, that's Christianity. But here in our section today in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us, no, no, it's not actually. It's radically different. It's far better. And so uh, without further ado, if we could open our Bibles up to Matthew chapter 6. If you've got a paper Bible, you can open up with me. And more we'll have it on the screen, Matthew chapter 6. We'll read sort of a long section in Matthew 6 today. Um, and I've been saying this every week in this series. We our intention is not to go through every single verse. Uh, we could do that, and it would take us a really, really long time, and it would be totally worth it. But this time around, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, what we're going to do instead is we're going to uh, give maybe a couple of ways to frame the sermon so that when you're reading the sermon on your own, you can actually, like, you, you have a way to navigate these sections, all right? So um, let's read together in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret." Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Verse 16, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who's unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, this is a long section, as I said before. Uh, and what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk to you about two different frames um, through which you can read this section. The first frame is relationship, and the second framing is reward. Relationship and reward. Uh, one of the things that you might frequently hear as a, Christ- as a Christian is Christianity is not a religion. It's a anybody? It's a relationship. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. In other words, what most people think of as religion, which is sort of a system of beliefs and practices, I mean, Christianity is that, but at its core, it's about the loving relationship between God, the triune God, and you and me. We have a heavenly Father who loves us, gave His Son for us, sent us His Spirit, And by the way, this strand of relationship, it's all through the scriptures. It's not just, it doesn't just start with Jesus. It starts all the way back at the beginning of the book. Uh, Relationship is why the psalmist actually says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. That's Psalm 145. Uh, Even when there's the giving of the law, the giving of the law was couched in relationship. It was couched in love, so much so that the gathered throng would actually sing, give thanks to the Lord for his, everyone say it with me, love endures forever. I've been saying over the past few weeks that this sermon is sort of like Jesus' words to us about what it means to live well, or what it means to have the good life, or good with a capital G. And so when I'm reading this sermon, I read this as kindness, because what I think is happening with this sermon is um, that God is telling us as a father, how to live well or to live best in the world. I mean, that's, that's my job as a parent. I have kids. Part of my job as a parent is to tell my kids the best way to live. Yes? Part of my job as a friend is to warn my friend when their life is sort of veering into danger. Part of my job as a mentor is to teach, is to tell. Here's what the good life actually looks like, and here's what God is doing. God is saying, I'm demonstrating to you my love because I'm telling you, I can see around all the corners. I've basically seen how everyone lives. And I know that the best way to live is this way. This is about relationship. I think oftentimes when you look at the sermon, you think there's a lot in here that's ethical and that's moral. And yes, it is, but it's couched. I want us to remember that it's couched because of relationship. It's couched in relationship relationship is the core of the sermon, and it's in really clear language in our section for today. 
So notice how Jesus begins um, our, our, our section, uh, Matthew chapter 6. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So to put that positively, practice your right living expressly for the Father who loves you. And then Jesus goes on to say, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then he goes on to say, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then he says, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. What is Jesus doing with all of these verses? He is centering the way that we think about living as Christians in relationship, expressly for the Father, expressly for relationship with the God who loves us. Why do we pray? Why do we give? Why do we fast? Well, Jesus tells us we do that all because of relationship with the Father. And we do it also to receive the reward from the Father who wants to bless us. I'll talk about reward here in a moment. So he's doing a couple things in this passage. The first thing that he's doing is he's centering our religious practice, our prayer, our generosity, our fasting on relationship. And the second thing that he's doing is he's drawing a contrast. So he's drawing a contrast between the good life, how we're meant to live, and the kind of religious adherence of some of the religious leaders for whom like the relationship morphed into religion or a carefully scripted set of rules to be followed, or the stressing of obedience over faith. Uh, anyone know what that's called, by the way? It's called legalism. And so the hope for a reward with legalism is actually exaltation and honor from other people. Notice, Jesus is drawing a contrast in regard to generosity and almsgiving. Don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. And why do they do it? They want to be honored by others. In regard to prayer, they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. In regard to fasting, to show others, that's why they fast, to show others they are fasting. They have received their reward in full. Legalism is not the good life. Legalism, here's the thing about legalism. It's about exaltation from other people. But why exaltation from other people? Well, power and control. Legalism is actually about power and control. I grew up in the Korean church, and we had this practice of praying for long periods of time. We'd pray for long periods of time, and we'd all pray together out loud. That's the famous one voice prayer of Koreans. Anybody heard of this practice before? Praying all in one voice? Yes, yeah, some of us are, woo, you know. Uh, prayer, that's how they would pray. And we'd pray, and it's beautiful because Koreans would pray for hours at a time doing that, praying. Oftentimes, like sometimes quiet, but so, well, a lot of times at the top of their lungs and in tongues. And I remember I could never do it because I'd be so distracted. I'd be sitting there and everyone would be praying at the top of their lungs and I would, I would just like pray with the person right next to me or I'd listen to the person 10 rows behind me. And, uh, and I'd be like, when is this going to be done is what I would think. So my friends and I, we invented a little game. This is terrible, okay? So 
I, I know this is terrible. I'm, I, I'm admitting it, okay? But we've, we, have this, we have this little game. We would, we would see how long we could last. So we'd pray, and we'd pray as long as we could and see if we made it longer than anyone else. Uh, like we'd resurface, and then we'd look around, and everyone would be staring at us. That's what our goal was. Uh, and so I, I just want to say that I managed to do it, actually, once, one time. And when I resurfaced from the prayer, I noticed that all these people were looking at me with admiration and respect. Um, and, and that's kind of what I cared about. I kind of thought, like, well, I wanted to win. And then I wanted everyone to look at me and think, that guy, he's really something, isn't he? I really wanted that. And here's the funny thing that happened. I did that. I followed sort of this religious adherence. Uh, and guess what happened? They looked at me and said, well, you should be a leader. And they made me a leader. And here's the funny thing. I'm not saying this is true of every Korean church, but it was true back then for me. Uh, I wasn't even praying anything. I don't even remember what I was praying. I just was thinking, I'm going to last. And then they looked at me and said, well, you should be a leader. And so then I got elevated. So power and control. And I can talk about all sorts of other examples when I didn't actually pray long enough or didn't actually do the things that I was asked to do. And I didn't, didn't get elevated. Actually, I got punished. It was not about relationship for me. It was not about relationship with the Father for me. I mean, here is Jesus saying, legalism is not the good life. Relationship is. Which is why we say to every one of our newcomers, if you're new with us today and you come to our newcomer gathering, which will happen after the end of this service, uh, the most important thing that we say to all of our newcomers and to all of us is that you are loved by God. The whole reason why we do any of this is because of love. We are loved by God. We are extravagantly loved by the Father. He loved us so much that he gave his only son so that we could have intimacy with the Father and be in his family. He loved us that much. And that's the foundation. Obedience is, uh, is, is a function of that. It's not the other way around. How many of you know that you were loved by God? Some of us do, which is good, yes? Uh, would you just turn to your neighbor and say to them, you are loved by God? Some of you, you, okay, you all don't want to do, some of you don't want to do this, and that's totally fine. Uh, but, I mean, this love is so preeminent and so powerful that this is why the Lord's Prayer, which is in the center of this section, uh, some people talk about the Lord's Prayer actually being sort of the apex of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it begins with, relationship is so important that it begins with the Our Father, yes? And we preached a whole sermon series on on uh, on the Lord's Prayer this past summer. I won't belabor the point, but I just want to make remake this point again. What is Jesus saying to the people gathered around him? He's saying that my relationship with the Father is your relationship with the Father. So the Apostle John tells us that Jesus is in closest relationship with the Father. 
He is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. And his job, his vocation on earth was to make the Father known. And here Jesus is saying to the people gathered around him, my relationship, I, uh, Jesus himself is God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He's saying that relationship is yours too. This is how much you are loved. You are loved. I mean, this is the foundation. Everything else... Everything else comes from that, that we are loved by God. So let's try it again. Would you turn to your neighbor and say, you are loved by God. Great job, everyone. Great job. I love seeing spouses do it with one another, you know? Oh, here's, here's the second thing. All right, so most of us, like, we believe in a God who loves us. And so we're like, well, of course that's true. In our, in our heads, we believe that that's true, you know? But a lot of us don't, doesn't really sink into our hearts. So here's the second question. Do you think that God likes you? Some of us are like, nah. I mean, I lived for a really long time just sort of believing that God tolerated me and that he loved me because, you know, I mean, that's what he has to do. It's his job. He loves people. But I'm just like this sort of the annoying little, little dude, you know, and I guess he tolerates me. Uh, but one of the most explosive, uh, one of the most explosively transformative things that's happened in my life is I spent like nine weeks in, in, or nine months in the Ignatian exercises where I came to actually believe that God delighted in me. He actually delights in you. Do you know that? I mean, he actually likes you. So, would you turn to your neighbor and say to them, God, God actually likes you. He loves you. He actually likes you. Some of you are like, I don't really like you, but the Lord likes you. I mean, I love you, but I don't really like you. I mean, this is the thing. This is the truth that sits at the center of the gospel. And this is the truth that actually sits at the center of the Sermon on the Mount. It's our Father. And it's our Father who actually loves us. Uh, this is about relationship with the self-giving loving God. It's also a relationship with others. When we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, how it's a social ethic, yeah, which is why Jesus uses such strong language around forgiveness. You may have got to that part in the sermon and you thought, ooh, you know, that's tough. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's pretty tough. But part of what Jesus is telling us is that that the heart of right living in the world as it pertains to right relationship with the Father is actually forgiveness for one another. It's the radical thing that we can offer the world that no one else can. Because we've experienced forgiveness and grace ourselves, we can actually offer it freely. Forgiveness is the way the world is mended which is sort of the restorative justice angle of this section. 
You know, the um, Eastern European scholar Daniel Augustine, who lived through sort of the splitting apart of Yugoslavia. Some of you remember that, yes? How Yugoslavia sort of split apart. It was a country, then it split apart. Um, and so she lived through that. So she experienced that. She experienced like uh, the, the conflict between Bosnians and Serbs and Croats. And, um, and here's, here's her writing on forgiveness. And here's what she says. Forgiveness opens the possibility of a common future with the other. And then she goes on to say, not counting the trespasses or not counting the debts of others against them serves as a designation for the content and practice of forgiveness. In other words, she's saying, this is, this is what forgiveness is. You don't count the trespasses of others against them. And then she goes on to say, forgiveness is the initiating point of intersocial communal healing. The act of opening space and time for the possibility of future with the other, even the enemy. For an authentic, an authentic movement of hope-infused, shalom-building social change. And here's Danielle Augustine saying there's power in forgiveness. Here's Danielle Augustine. I mean, we could talk all day long about forgiveness, um, but her conviction, and it's my conviction too, is that the reason why forgiveness sits at the center of this section is because part of what it means to be the people of God is to mean the kind of to be the kind of forgiving people that actually mend the entire world. Like I, I want to say something about the Middle East. Uh, I, like I hesitate to step into it. I mean, like many of us. We've read things, we've watched things, some of us have listened to podcasts. I mean, like, it's almost impossible to be fully educated about everything that's happening there, you know. But I hope that we're praying. Are we praying? I hope that we're praying. And part of what I'm praying for is I'm praying for what Daniel Augustine calls hope-infused, shalom-building social change. And I wouldn't dare... I wouldn't dare step into this unless I, I felt like Jesus was saying this in like black and white here on this on these pages. Um, forgiveness is the possibility of that. And so, would you join me in praying for shalom? And would you join me in praying actually for hope-infused shalom-building social change that occurs and recurs and recurs and recurs again through the alien act of forgiveness? relationship is at the core. It's not just relationship with the Father who loves us so very much, but it's relationship with one another. And it's also about reward. That's the other framing. So let's talk about reward here for a moment. Two things that I want to say about it. The first thing, we're made for reward. And the second thing, the Father wants to give us reward. Here, the first thing. We're made for reward. So I read this book on, once on habits. One of the key factors of creating new habits is actually reward. How many of you know that? So, like, uh, say you want to start exercising, and you like chocolate. So uh, you, like, put a piece of chocolate on the treadmill, and you run. <laughs> you run uh, for that chocolate, that piece of chocolate. And then when you're done running, you eat the chocolate. And you're like, well, I did it. 
Apparently that helps. It works. And I'm not saying, you know, like don't, not like boxes and boxes of chocolate or whatever, but if you like ice cream, just put ice cream on the treadmill and run fast because you know it's going to melt. You know, just eat. That's the reward. Part of, part of, we're made for reward. I mean, I have small children. My children are always looking for a reward. They're always asking me, well, what do you think of this? And what do you think of that thing that I made? And what do you think of my hair? I'm like, I have no hair. So any hair is great. So I'm always like, yes, yes, like, great. I love the French braid in the back. Wonderful, wonderful, beautiful, beautiful. They're always looking for warm approbation, appreciation. They're looking for treats and screen time too. Yes? Okay. Reward. We're made for reward. But don't we downgrade reward in Western culture? We do. And it's because of this philosopher named Immanuel Kant, who had something called the categorical imperative. The categorical imperative refers to commands or moral laws that all persons must follow, regardless of their desires or extenuating circumstances, which is very, very complicated language for basically saying, you got to do the right thing no matter what. You got to do it no matter what. But part of what Kant tells us is that an action that is truly moral needs no other reward than the doing of the thing. It's part of what Kant tells us. And this is altruism, yes? Part of what Kant is telling us is he's telling us that having some kind of reward actually sullies the act. It makes it inferior. Like if you do the right thing and you get a reward, well, it's, it's inferior to the act that didn't have a reward. That's what Kant tells us. But listen, friends, that's not biblical. It's not. Reward is something we should be motivated by. Reward, especially from our Father who loves us, is something that should actually animate our actions. We should think about the reward. Like, consider this. No job has longevity unless there is some kind of reward. Yes? I mean, like, when I was a young pastor, a leadership consultant came and taught us about appreciation. She gave us this quadrant, and she said, there is this quadrant of appreciation, and, and on one corner, there is words of affirmation. In another corner, uh, it's belonging, and underneath is information or influence, and then right next to it is gifts. And her um, contention was that no workplace is healthy and thriving unless all four of these things are happening somehow. Workplace has to have all four of these things. Words of affirmation, belonging, information or, or influence, gifts. I mean, if you read leadership books, uh, which I, 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 I'm not recommending, but if you read leadership books, you'll find that leadership books will say the same thing. You have to encourage people. You have to encourage the heart as an essential practice. Now, some of you are looking at this going, my workplace doesn't do any of those things. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to make a comment on that. But I'm just saying that these things are essential to what it means to be in a thriving and healthy kind of place. But I'm also trying to say that this appreciation is actually reward. What is this appreciation but reward? I mean, like if you index these four things on reward from the Heavenly Father, well, here's what you get. When you look at words of affirmation, what about, well done, my good and faithful servant? Well, when you think about gifts and belonging, I mean, you could find them in this one verse, Matthew 19, 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. 
So why does he make the distinction between 100 times as much in eternal life? It's because he's trying to say, Jesus is saying to us, you're going to receive that 100 times as much in this life, all right, as well as in the eternal life. And then when it comes to influence, uh, if we endure, we will also reign with him. There's a reward. And also, um, how about information? I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. Would you notice that these rewards aren't about earning status, are they? You already have it. You already loved. Remember, the father likes you. Do we need to do that again? How many of you want to do that again? Some of us do, none of us, I mean, others of us like, please, no, 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 I hate when he makes us do those things, you know. Um, you already loved, you, the Father already delights in you, and so the reward, the reward is just because God wants to bless us. In a legalistic system, reward is about earning something. In a relationship, reward is because we have a Father who wants to bless us. The thing about the categorical imperative and Kant, is that it blinds us to the heart of God. The reward teaches us something very true about our Father. He loves us, and He wants to bless us. He loves us and wants to bless us. You know, like um, I, I give my children rewards all the time. We celebrate the big days, the small victories, and I give them rewards not because they deserve it, even though they do lots of praiseworthy things. I just do it because I love them. It could be the littlest thing. I wash my hands. Well, let's have a treat, you know? I mean, seriously, I, I want to do it. If I'm this way with my kids, though, Jesus is saying, and he says it elsewhere in the sermon, how much more the Father for you? He wants to reward you. He wants to bless you. And I referred, this, I referred to this earlier. The reward is not just eschatological. It's not just for after we die. The reward actually happens right now. As we live out our lives in a relationship with God, we get a reward. There are rewards all over. Like how many of you, when, when you, when we sing those songs, you know, as we, we did beautifully earlier today, how many of you, like, experience something in your hearts when we sing those songs? Like, uh, I feel tears coming down my face. You know, like something happens. Uh, how many of you feel warmth inside when we sing? How many of you come in to the church and you're distracted and you're maybe a little discouraged and you sing songs and afterward you somehow feel lighter? How many of you experience that? That is not an accident. That's actually the Spirit of God. Could I even say, with faith, that that is actually the love of God filling your hearts and your bodies? You want words of affirmation? What about every song we sing? We're trying to sing the love of God over all of us. Um, or what about belonging? How many of you have come to church and since coming to church have made friends you never would have thought in your whole entire life that you would have? This is what happens. When you become a Christian, you get adopted into a family. And guess what? This family has lots of brothers and sisters and some fathers and some mothers too and lots of little kids. They all run around. You know, uh, ever since I have become a Christian, 
I have experienced and found more brothers and sisters and more best friends than I could have ever hoped for. I mean, they're like my family. What about gifts? Too many to name, yes? Or what about influence? I'm trying to give back the influence that is the reward for me. It seems to be a reward, and I'm like, I don't want it. I don't want it. Um, I think part of what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to say that in our lives, we must get present both to the fact that God loves us so extravagantly and so deeply and so wonderfully, but also that our lives are not like uh, an ox that treads the grain of his muzzle. We actually experience reward in a love relationship with the Father. And what I'm asking this morning is to get present to two things. Number one, the relationship, and number two, the reward. How have you felt God rewarding you right now? I mean, look at that quadrant. Can you name any of the rewards that the Father is already giving you? Just take a moment and look at that quadrant. The Father wants to bless you. How is he blessing you today? Here's the paradoxical thing about about our faith. I, I hope you notice on this on this quadrant of appreciation here that there is no escape from suffering or trouble. Is there? Uh, blessing is not escape from trouble or suffering. We read that in the Beatitudes. Yes, Beatitudes were like a very vulnerable affirmation that God can be with us even when we are poor in spirit, when we're mourning, when we're thirsty, when we're hungry. Yes. I mean, like, it's often, and I'll even go and say this even further, I mean, like, it's often within the trouble, within the suffering, that we actually get more aware of the reward. Like, I'm aware of the brothers and sisters who are with me when I'm experiencing the worst kind of pain. In suffering and in pain, I mean, like, my experience during my surgery was that I had brothers and sisters who'd rally around me, and I have the experience of the words of affirmation from my father who loves me. I mean, like, I couldn't, like, escape it. How is the father already giving you reward? And, of course, the greatest reward of all uh, which I think that the religious leader has totally lost sight of, was God himself. And here's the Lord coming to Abram in a vision, and here's what he says to Abram, do not be afraid. Some of you need to hear this first today. Do not be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. God himself, a reward unlike any other. I mean, what proves more that God wants to bless us than the cross. Yes? The relationship with us was so important to him that he gave his son for us and invites us into his family and means for us to be resurrected in glorious light and means for us to be with him forever in a city whose light never goes out because the Lord is always there. I mean, that's the reward.
It's both heavenly and it's earthly. And we can experience it now. So let's stand, shall we? There's a prayer that I pray every morning for our church. I pray it for every single one of you. Um, Many of you I know by name. Some of you I don't know. um, But I pray it nonetheless for every single person in this church. And the prayer goes like this. For this reason I kneel before the Father. I'm just praying this right now. So if we could hold our hands out and receive the blessing of the love of God. Um, Father, I'm praying. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you and me with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And so, Spirit of God, would you give us that power together in this room to help us to know the magnitude of your love for us, to help us to be able to name the ways, all the ways that you're blessing us and rewarding us, so that we might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And when I hear that, I think of all the joy, I think of all the power, I think of all the strength, I think of all the grace and all the mercy and even the alien ability to forgive. I think of all of that. Would you fill us with that in Jesus' name? Amen.